them and to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember <clears throat> their sin no more. <clears throat> and so he's talking about this new covenant <clears throat> and he's going to make a new covenant, not according to the covenant when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And of course, brought them out of the land of Egypt and then on Mount Sinai, he gave him the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and that was written on stone. And so he says here, I'm going to put it in their hearts. It's not going to be on stone anymore. It's going to be a new covenant. And uh, verse 34 is, is a very uh, thought-provoking. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And so what are we doing here this morning then? We don't need to teach each other. I, we actually had Sunday school. We were teaching each other. But it says here we don't need to do that. So, uh, well, anyway, uh, think about that a little bit. Uh, we have a similar thought over in uh, Ezekiel 36. I'll just quick turn there. Uh, verses 26 and 27, if you're taking notes. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my judgments. You shall keep my judgments and do them. Actually, as we were singing that song, I was thinking the words of the song said a good bit, uh, kind of similar to the thoughts here about the spirit. Now, I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews 8. And actually, here in Hebrews 8, it quotes this passage from Jeremiah. And uh, Hebrews is a book of better things, the, the new covenant and so on. And so in Hebrews 8, the first verse, read the first verse and then skip down to verse 6. First verse says now, and he's been talking about the better things, and he's been talking about Jesus, how he's better. Now the things which we have spoken, this is a sum, so he's summing up what, they've said, what he's written so far. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, and that's talking about Jesus, of course. Now, verse 6, but now hath he... That's Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So there we have it again. And we have similar thought in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. And then uh, we also have the similar thought in uh, 1 John 2, 27, where it says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So you don't need any man to teach you, according to this. Um, wh what does that mean? 
Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, that verse, I think, starts to give us a little uh, understanding. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 says, uh, but, as teaching, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. Now, Paul, he wrote to the churches. He wrote all his letters to the churches. If they didn't need anybody to teach them, why'd he write to them? He says, as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, although you'll find in Ephesians, Philippians, and so on, he exhorts them to love one another. I mean, he tells them over and over. <laughs> but he says, you don't really need me to write this to you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The Holy Spirit teaches these things. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, and I don't know if we totally understand, but in, we the, the new covenant is a much better covenant. We all have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. We have a clean conscience in a way that the Old Testament saints didn't. Hebrews talks about that. Um, some of those people in the Old Testament had a tremendous relationship with God. But across the board, it wasn't like it is where we each have the Holy Spirit today. And so the Holy Spirit does teach us. And in fact, if the only teaching that we get, if the, yeah, if the only teaching, okay, how can I say it? If the only thing that moves us, orders our lives, is, is what other people tell us, if that's what motivates us. Now, we could talk about this a long time, uh, about brotherhood and all this. But if the only thing that motivates and directs us and controls our lives is what other people tell us, is what the church tells us, that, that doesn't cut it. We have to hear from God. God speaks to us. We need to be living the way we're living because God has spoken to us because we have a living relationship with Jesus Christ and that's the new covenant. So I think that's part of it. Ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The Holy Spirit teaches us that. God teaches us that. And we encourage each other in that too. But it's God that, it's God that must move upon us for these things. <clears throat> one commentary said it this way. The New Testament is shorter than the Old Testament because instead of the details of an outward letter law, it gives the all-embracing principles of the spiritual law written on the conscience, leading one to spontaneous instinctive obedience in outward details. That's interesting. Leading one to spontaneous instinctive obedience in outward details. Well, just a little bit more about the Holy Spirit um, and this thing, the New Covenant, God's a right, he's going to give us all the spirit, he's going to write on our hearts. And so, uh, Ephesians 5, 16, 18, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh <clears throat> lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that you would. But if ye be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Under the law, it says nobody could keep the law. It says, you cannot do the things that you would, and Paul talks about that in Romans 7. The things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I want to do, I can't. And then he says, who shall deliver me from this? 
And then he talks about, uh, chapter 8 starts out talking about the Holy Spirit. And, but it's, he, who shall deliver me from this? And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was his, as he struggled in his own strength to, 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 to do what he knew was right and what he wanted to do, he didn't have the strength in himself to do it. But by the power of God, he could. Uh, well, then he, so he writes in Romans, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And then Romans 8, 2, right following up from Romans 7, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So that, that's, that's the new covenant. But this whole idea of, you know, uh, and I think I've raised this question before and I'm not going to really get it answered today. That's, a, that's another subject because I have a little something else that's on my mind today. But, you know, if the Holy Spirit teaches us What okay? The the question the question is, or what I grapple with in my mind is, um, we have the Holy Spirit that teaches us, empowers us, and so on. And then, to what extent does that order our lives, and what to what extent does the uh, the, uh, the the regulations of the church order our lives? And so, uh, and so, what role does each play? And um, well, in reading, reading people's perspectives and stuff, you know, uh, they, they, there are those who would, would tend to say that because we, we have a disciplined church, uh, and because we have the brotherhood agreement and, and we have, we have our rules and regulations and so on, that militates against the spirit. Because the spirit is supposed to direct our lives. And, and so, so how do you put it together? And, um, in other words, in life, how do you find the balance? How do you find the balance? Cause the people would say, Oh, we're just going to live by the spirit. You know, everybody does what's right in his own eyes. That doesn't work very well either. And the people who, the only thing they have God in their lives is just the rules of the church. That's, that's pretty inferior too. So the balance, the balance is what we want. And achieving that balance sometimes is, is, is not the simplest thing. Okay, so now I want to turn to Hebrews 10. Now, we just looked at Hebrews 8, which was quoting Jeremiah. So now we're going to look at Hebrews 10 and start at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye... Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, 
and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. So that's sobering, but um, what I'm particularly thinking about here, well, he says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter to the holy, uh, and the word there has the idea, also includes the idea of liberty or confidence. We have freedom to come into the presence of God. We have confidence to come into the presence of God because of Christ by this new and living way. And then in verse 24, it says, let us consider one another. And the idea of the word consider is to observe fully. Uh, it's, it's translated, uh, behold, consider, discover, or perceive. That's the different ways in English this Greek word is translated in the New Testament. And so to consider one another, to observe fully, be aware of each other, perceive each other. And the word, of course, provoke means to incite in a good way. Now, often the word incite has a negative connotation, but here, in a good way, we're to incite each other to, to love and to good works. Um, the, um, the New King James says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Uh, the, uh, another translation said, let us bestow thought on one another. But now, um, well, okay, then verse five, verse, uh, 25 says, uh, exhorting one another, exhort. Uh, and there, again, that word uh, is to invite or to invoke, and it's translated beseech, call for, comfort, uh, desire, give exhortation, um, pray. And so this is what we're supposed to be doing for each other. Now, the question we could raise, I mean, does the Bible contradict itself? It just said that we all know the Lord and we don't need people to teach us. And here it says that we're supposed to not neglect getting together and exhorting each other and stimulating each other. And so what, what's this all about? Uh, one other thing I'd like to say yet about this, the, the spirit, um, the if we have the Spirit to teach us, what more do we need? Um, I mean, we're kind of good to go, right? Um, but that last phrase in verse 29 is really serious. It says, had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Uh, we know, uh, let's see, one, okay, Bible and basic English said, had no respect for the Spirit of grace. New King James says, insulted the spirit of grace. And so that is a possibility. And, and it, you know what 1 Thessalonians 5.19 is, I think. Uh, can somebody tell me? Four words about the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Quench not the spirit, yeah. Okay, so it can be, do, we can ignore his speaking to us and... Um, and Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So we can, we can. So what happened? I mean, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll just get to that just in a minute. One other thing I wanted to bring in here that relates to what's on my heart this morning. First uh, Peter 1.15 and 16 
says, But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, that means manner of life, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That doesn't seem connected maybe to what I've said so far, but I just want to bring it in because of of what what we want to cover this morning. Um, So holiness. Bible calls us to holiness. God is holy, and so we emphasize that. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Without holiness, you can't see the Lord. So it's pretty important. Um, and then 2 Corinthians 7, 1, another one right after those verses in in in, in, in 2 Corinthians 6, um, 14 to 20, about... Um, now, light and darkness don't have anything in common and so on, and so we're keep separate we're, we're keep separate from the, uh, well, I'm going to take time to read those verses. But then 7.1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we're called to a holy life. Uh, that's very important. And uh, we work at that pretty hard, or we, we try Okay, that's one thing. Now, but back to this thing about being controlled by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit in our lives, that, that's powerful. We have God living in us. We're, we're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And probably some of you have or many of you know some of the things that have happened recently, and it happens over and over and over, but um, a little closer home this time. But, um, well, first of all, just recently, and maybe not as as many of you are aware of this, but Josh Harris, Josh Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye, uh, it was a bestseller by the time he was 20 years old. And then, uh, so he's a very popular fella. He uh, kind of interned, you might say, at a, a mega church in Maryland, Sovereign Grace Ministries. And by the time he was thirty, he was he was, he was uh, sort of head head pastor, one of the head pastors there, Sovereign Grace Ministries. This they had uh, churches all over the U.S., foreign countries, and so on. Well, then that church ran into a scandal about uh, six, seven years ago. Major scandal, and uh, came out came out in the news and although he wasn't involved it evidently did something to him he resigned went to Van- vancouver british columbia i believe it was said he's going to go there and get some theological training just within the last week or two he said uh well he and his so he he wrote the book i kissed dating goodbye and then he wrote another book boy meets girl about how he met his wife and so on and and uh did everything the right way well, they've divorced, and he also is saying that uh, basically um, he's not what he's not a Christian anymore. He not he's not. Uh, I don't want to say it. He's not, he doesn't seem to be um, militantly reacting against Christianity. Okay, he's just saying I'm 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 giving it up. Um, he, he, he said deconstructing. And we would probably say deconverting. He said the Bible calls us an apostasy. That's what he said. And just this week, he marched in a gay pride and uh, prayed in, uh, in, uh, in Vancouver. Uh, 
what what causes a person to what what, what happens to a person for this to happen? Well, there's a couple of things I thought about. Um, popularity is a is a huge obstacle. Popularity is a huge obstacle, and he was popular young, young on. And then uh, man inherit and man is tendency to Ubers and that's deadly. So uh, and then there's things about church culture that causes the person to react to. Like this scandal. I, I just wonder what that scandal had to do with his thinking. Uh, it had to have some effect on it. That's out there. But the other one, and and you all most of you probably are aware at least parts of this, is this thing about Jeriah Mast and C.A.M. and uh, his um, terrible track record, if I could, whatever, whatever, however you want to say it. And so I spent hours and hours in the last couple of weeks, and maybe it's not necessary, maybe it's, anyway, that's the way I am, but I spent hours and hours reading hundreds of pages of stuff about this, and I guess to a certain extent, trying to learn something. Or what can we learn from it? When something bad happens, what can you learn from it? And, um, and of course, a lot of what you read, you have to process. You know, it's social media. Well, I'm not in social media, but I was reading a lot of stuff on Mennonette. And, um, and then, of course, then that take, I ran across other websites where, like, there was this one guy who was a Baptist pastor, and now he's an atheist, and basically he, what he, puts on his website is all these scandals in in uh, whether it's Catholic or evangelic or whatever and, and he's got plenty of them. I mean it happens all over the place and why but then that's out there I mean we can say Joshua Harris or we can say Sovereign Grace Ministries or something yeah sure we expect that of Protestants you know but it's not just out there and uh, so I'm going to read some things here that I, of the hundreds of pages of stuff that I read, I'm just going to read some things that people were saying, just a few things. Christians need to be forthright about naming their sins. The church needs to provide an environment conducive to frank and immediate confession. James 5.4 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, well, actually, it's not James 5.4, it's James 5.16. That's the English Standard Version. And therefore, you know, it says, therefore, confess your sins. Now, the King James says, confess your faults. We like that a little better. Um, what, what would be possible if the church community refused to awkwardly blush and turn away, but instead laid hands on the struggling member and prayed for his healing and for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, what if honesty was valued above saving face? Okay, here's another one. Only, I'm not, only Jesus gives us the peace with God we're all looking for. The peace we tend to think living with a clean slate can only give us. Now that's something to think about us. And I'm not saying I agree with exactly how everybody said these things, okay? Only Jesus gives us the peace with God we're all looking for. The peace we tend to think living with a clean slate can only give us. We had communion, and everybody on their communion card said they had peace, peace with God. 
peace with their brothers and sisters, peace with their fellow men as well as they're able. Peace, 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 peace. Clean slate. A clean slate is that peace. We could talk about that, I guess. I'll move on. Okay, this is what, what one person giving their experience. I can only give my honest opinion. As someone who grew up in an unsaved Catholic home, whose entire family got radically saved during a six-month period, was in the Calvary Chapel type of church for, for years, then conservative Mennonites for 14 years, I feel like I have truth, truthfully seen all the extremes. I will confine my myriad of thoughts to this. There is simply next to no prayer or accountability within the Mennonite churches, no matter what the conference. No one-on-one -on -one prayer. I never prayed in person with another woman in my 14 years among them in various states and churches within their system. I don't know if you think that's unusual or not. But, you know, uh, years ago, Becky McGurin would go every once in a great while and spend a day with Diane Freed in fellowship and prayer. That's unusual in our circles. Unreal. We so had it drilled in our heads about what to do and not do as far as clothing and appearance, but no such grillings on prayer. Prayer meetings tended to focus on the local needs. One man who dared to ask for prayer for his temper towards his sons was told later to keep that for his own prayer closet. No one even prayed for him that night at the prayer meeting, and we wonder why people are leaving these circles, including my own family. Where does a pastor seriously go to pray with another man or men before these things escalate? So much is on the outward appearance. How would it look if, if I said I need serious prayer? Maybe that is much better, even if potentially seen by some as sort of misnamed admission of somehow not being perfect, than stories that escalate to abuse and scandal. There simply is no perfect church, and you need to be fasting and in prayer to navigate the very real pitfalls of life and find like-minded Christians who feel the same. I will add cell phones have just made it all 1,000 worse, 1,000% worse during our 14 years among them. People literally wasting their times, lives, and purity with so much of their waking hours spent on their phones. But that last part is universal among every church denomination and out there, sadly. We are all broken. Even the best ministries and churches are still run by deeply broken people in the process of being wholly redeemed by Jesus. My observation is that, speaking broadly, the Anabaptist tradition places their confidence in battling the desires, the deeds of the flesh, in past heritage, present community, and at times external rules. This is her observation, that the Anabaptist tradition places their confidence in battling the deeds of the flesh by their past heritage, their present community, and at times external rules. And so, there again, the question of the spirit versus regulations, and that's, that's another sermon. Here's another person. We need people who recognize that being a Christian is not about being someone without fault. We also need people who realize the best church organization is not the one who has no issues within itself. We all have fault. Every one of us is poisoned with the propensity to do things outside of God's design. Every one of us does things outside of God's design. And every one of us finds clever ways to cover it up as not as bad as it really is. Transformation in our churches is not about purifying ourselves of any misconduct so we are never caught with it again. Honesty isn't about being better in the stat box than other denominations. Christianity isn't only valid because we aren't haunted by the sins of fallen humanity. Christianity is valid because Jesus is real. 
Holiness is something we are when touched by the Spirit of God. Transformation is realizing that every one of us is broken and capable of doing the same horrendous sins. Only, and here again, I'm going to pull this down to repeat it. Only Jesus gives us the peace with God we're all looking for. The peace we tend to think living with a clean slate can only give us. No human is perfect. Okay, this was another person. No human is perfect. Our most respected and trusted friends or family can disappoint us or let us down. Even our mothers and fathers who ordinarily would not harm us can fail. Knowing and keeping God at center is our strength. He is our coping mechanism. One sign of idol worship sneaking into our minds is when we become so hurt by others' betrayal or bad behavior. When we keep the recognition that none is perfect, the disappointments don't quite cut so sharply. Idol worship is sneaky. It creeps in when we least expect it. I try to convey this to my now adult children, even when they were young. We're your parents. We love you. But only one perfect one will not fail you. Worship and trust God. It's easier for to give when, it's easier to forgive when to begin. Perfection was not expected. Now here again, I suppose these things could be talked about a lot, but I think I understand what's being said, and maybe I wouldn't say it exactly the same way, but maybe I've told you before, but Socrates' little syllogism on all men are mortal, John Swartz is a man, therefore John Swartz is mortal. Uh, for me, I've kind of adopted a similar one for my life. All men are fallible. John Swartz is fallible. John Swartz is a, okay, all men are fallible. John Swartz is a man, therefore John Swartz is fallible. And you can put anybody's name in there you want to. Everybody's fallible. Everybody's going to make mistakes. I can give my brother a little rope. He's not perfect. Now we expect, we expect righteous living. I mean, if we're walking in the spirit, if we're, yeah, and that, that's another sermon. How, um, yeah, maybe sometime we'll get there. But, uh, um, I, I, it, 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 I'm not saying by any means that we, we walk through life, um, we walk, walk through life as a big failure. There is, I mean, the resurrection is kind of like Milo Zare said one time in his uh, class, if I if I got if I remember how he said it, I think I got it right at Liberty University. Um, he got he got a degree down there, and I forget what it was in. But anyway, he said the professor said shut the door, and he said, in our system, I'm putting them all in words. In our system of theology, we don't need a resurrection because the cross. We go to the cross. Jesus shed his blood. Died, he died for us. His his blood uh, covers our sins, so our sins are covered. So we don't need the resurrection. See, we believe the res. Okay, the cross isn't. I don't know. Is the cross the center of our faith? We tend to think that. We tend to say that, and maybe it is. But what about the open tomb? The resurrection. We live by resurrection power. We believe we can, we believe we have victory over sin because Jesus conquered Satan. And so, so in saying all this that I've read, I'm not saying that we're going to go, that, that we expect to go through. And so when I say I, I give my brother a little room to be less than perfect, I don't mean I just expect us to live in sin. Cause first John talks about that. If we live in sin, we're not, we're not a child of God. That's what he says. If we habitually sin. 
And, and like the psalmist said, cleanse thou me from secret faults. See, there's so many things. I believe I don't, know how, I don't know how to say this. Um, if I could see myself as God sees me, uh, I would see a lot of flaws. <laughs> uh, cleanse out me from secret faults. Keep me back also from presumptuous sins. That's the ones I know I shouldn't be doing and I do anyway. That's presumptuous sins. And the psalmist said, keep me away from those. But he's, he's acknowledging he has things that he doesn't know about himself that still aren't perfect in God's sight. And we aren't perfect. And that, that's one thing that these people were talking about is um, this, this idea of perfection. Uh, we, 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 we try and present this picture of perfection. You know, if people knew we weren't perfect, well, that would be too bad. Well, we know each other aren't perfect, but, well, okay, just a little bit more here. This is just a little bit more. Much of what conservative Christians thinks is holiness is actually just denial. It's a big game of pretending. Everyone looks so good. They mostly keep their struggles to themselves. There's not a lot of space in our culture for messy lives. Many years ago, probably... Maybe close to 30 years ago, when I was on the board at Maranatha Bible School, and I learned to know, well, well, I don't need to say who it was. Most of you wouldn't know him, but a few of you might. But anyway, it was a, it was a young family that had just joined the, the Mennonite Church up there in Minnesota. And uh, this lady, the wife, was fairly expressive. And uh, she's talking to me, and she said about how, you know, in church, you're all, all so perfect. She said, like her husband, you know, he'll say, Pray for me. I just I just blew it with my wife this week. And uh, I told her, I said, well, we don't necessarily wear everything on our sleeve, and, and you don't need to. Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of, a, you know, and as far as this whole thing of being open. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you what the title of the message was. The title of the message is Transparency. That's what the title of the message is today, Transparency. And... Uh, and I think Brother Philip has some things he wants to share with us as a congregation along that line. You know, how can we be a brotherhood? How can we be a transparent congregation? How can we be helping each other the way we should? Uh, and see, this whole thing with Jariah Mast, uh, there were failures all along the line. And if there had been transparency, if there had been, well, we, we haven't learned really good how to deal with people with that kind of deviant, uh, ingrained uh, um uh, addictions, let me put it that way. Uh, but anyway, we should be a little bit more like what this lady was calling for. You know, we all we all sit here so perfect, good. We don't really, we're not too open to share our struggles. And there are things that we don't, I can understand there are things that we don't share. Um, not because we want to hide them, but because maybe the nature of them. Um, and yeah, I was thinking about that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, and, you know, how we can talk to him. And we, we need to do that. Um, and he's the only one that's perfect. He's the only one that won't fail us. But, okay, so the subject is transparency. And having said all that, uh, just a few closing verses. 
Again, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I, I've said this before. I think that healing, the things we confess to each other, that's in the context perhaps to a certain extent of physical healing, but I think it would apply across the board um, spiritual, emotional needs and so on too. Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Ephesians 4, 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. We are members one of another. We should be willing to be truthful and open with each other. Last part of Ephesians 2 says, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for habitation of God through the Spirit. So we are fellow citizens. We're a household of God. And, and, and we're built we're, we, we, the foundation is Jesus Christ, but the building is being fitly framed. And so we as a brotherhood, you know, we mesh together. We're, we're supporting each other. We're encouraging each other, like it says in Hebrews 10. And then uh, last uh, 4.16 says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. I see in that verse tremendous uh, joining together, compact, uh, effectual working in every part, edifying itself in love. That's brotherhood working together to build up each other and encourage each other. So... Um, that takes transparency. It takes um, humility. It takes wrecking. It takes giving. Yeah, it takes openness. It takes um, it takes not pretending we're perfect. It takes um, when somebody acknowledges the weakness. It's not like, oh, uh, what's wrong with them, you know. But we come along their side and we pray for them and, hey, they're human after all, just like I am and so on. Well, let's, let's kneel for prayer.